This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Thank you all of you for turning out. And uh, I noticed the uh, little breath of relief when uh, you realize you were not going to get a lecture on the immortality of the soul, um, which I would not be well equipped to give. But I suppose one could say there's this connection between what I will talk about. If indeed the soul were immortal, and if at least some souls went, as some people believe, to paradise or heaven, then presumably they would be happy. But then we have to ask, what does that mean? What is the good that would be achieved were they to be happy? And that does take us pretty close to my topic. So I prepare that justification in case anyone should challenge the propriety of this talk uh, on that lecture. (laughs) What I'm really going to do is talk about what underpins the views that I've held on many issues, as was mentioned in the introduction, uh, about the treatment of animals, about global poverty, about life or death questions. So I'm not actually going to be addressing the specifics of those questions but rather uh, the value underneath it. For essentially um, my whole philosophical life, certainly since I wrote uh, Practical Ethics more than 30 years ago, I've held that the right thing to do is what does most to satisfy the preferences of all those affected by one's action, whether human or non-human. That's a view that's uh, generally known as preference utilitarianism, And I held it, I suppose, to some extent under the influence of uh, one of my Oxford teachers, R.M. Hare, uh, whose view was based on what he called universal prescriptivism, that is, a view of ethics which says that moral judgments are prescriptions, they're not statements, they can't be true or false in an ordinary sense, although we can reason about them because they have to be universalized in a special sense of that term. I'd been uneasy about that meta-ethic for quite some time, but it took two factors, or perhaps it would be better to say two great philosophers, to persuade me to seriously consider a shift away from it. One of them uh, was, as Professor Band mentioned in the introduction, uh, Henry Sidgwick, um, who I'm currently working on. And let me say, I'm working, uh, I'm not just writing this book by myself, I have a co-author, a Polish colleague, Dr. Katarzyna de Lazari Radek, and I want to acknowledge that the work that I'm presenting is to some extent uh, drawn from work that we have jointly prepared as part of the draft uh, of this book. The second, uh, and and Sidgwick was uh, an objectivist in ethics, so um, uh, to some extent working out uh, his views on, on the nature of ethics. 
The second great philosopher um, who has influenced me is uh, a contemporary, uh, the Oxford philosopher Derek Parfit, whose uh, major recent work uh, on what matters is, uh, at least in part, an extended defense of uh, objectivism in ethics. Now, um, one could accept objectivism as a meta-ethical position and still be a preference utilitarian in terms of normative ethics, that is, in terms of the, the, the content of what you think one ought to do. Objectivism doesn't preclude uh, the idea that we ought to satisfy desires or preferences uh, as a normative view. But it does, for various reasons, increase the appeal of some alternatives to it. And prominent among these is the idea that happiness is the ultimate good. So what I'm going to talk about today is to explore that idea. The idea, in other words, that instead of being preference utilitarians, we should be closer to the classical utilitarians um, who were concerned about happiness or, um, uh, as it's sometimes put, were hedonistic utilitarians. Hedonism from the Greek word for pleasure. So, section two. What do we mean by happiness? The trinity of 19th century utilitarians, that's Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, and Henry Sidgwick, were all ethical hedonists. When they discuss happiness, they often use happiness or pleasure, because for them happiness means a surplus of pleasure over pain. This view has been subject to considerable criticism over the years, and uh, I'm certainly was not been the only one who's thought that uh, it was not defensible, that a preference view was better. Um, and there have been quite a few recent works uh, examining, in particular, happy, the, the, the concept of happiness and uh, what we mean by that. One of them is by Fred Feldman. It's a book called What is This Thing Called Happiness? And Feldman is quite critical of the classical view. He attributes to Bentham, Mill, and Sidgwick what he calls sensory hedonism, um, which essentially um, means, I guess, that uh, you're happy at a time if and only if you feel more sensory pleasure than pain at that time, and unhappy if and only if you feel more sensory pain than pleasure at that time. What does he mean by sensory pleasure? Well, I take it that the dictionary definition says relating to sensation or the physical senses transmitted or perceived by the senses. So uh, uh, Feldman seems to mean something like that, and he does say that sensory pleasure always has some phenomenally given sensory intensity, which is a measure of how strong or vivid or brilliant the pleasure is. So it seems that he's really thinking about something of which the paradigm cases would be the physical pleasures, whether they're pleasures of sex or of eating or of the warmth of the sun on your back or something of that sort. And indeed, in, in arguing against sensory hedonism, Feldman uses an example from sexual pleasure. He asks us to imagine an unfortunate character named Wendell who's seen advertisements for an orgasm enhancer that it's claimed will give him an amazing 400 hedon orgasm. <laughs> you have to imagine that we can measure pleasure in units that are called hedons. <laughs> Although he's been warned by his friends that the advertisements are probably a scam, he buys the device and tries it out. 
But when the orgasm comes, instead of the monster orgasm he's expecting, he gets a pathetic little 12-hedon orgasm. <laughs> Experiencing it, he's unhappy. But why? <laughs> After all, Feldman argues, 12 hedons is better than no hedons, or minus 12 hedons. So, surely Wendell is experiencing pleasure rather than pain. If happiness is just having a positive balance of pleasure over pain, we would have to agree that at the moment of orgasm he's happy, but anyone observing him can see that he has a pained look on his face and seems generally unhappy. Feldman also has another case, um, perhaps more realistic, and in some respects the reverse of this. He asks us to imagine a woman in the throes of giving birth without drugs because she wants to be able to fully experience the birth process, so she's in considerable pain. But with one last push, the baby comes out. Later she says that that was... So later she says that the pain was the worst that she's ever felt, much greater than she'd expected, but at the same time the birth was the happiest moment of her life. Both these cases, Feldman argues, suggest that the hedonism of the Bentham Mill Sidgwick variety is false. Well, I think that this is really a travesty of uh, certainly what Sidgwick was arguing. I won't answer for Bentham or Mill. Um, because he has a much broader notion of pleasure. For example, among the pleasures he talks about are the pleasures of intellectual exercise, of aesthetic reception, of uh, grasping some scientific discovery. And he talks about the pleasure of labour, meaning I take it work rather than giving birth. But still... He also notes that there are states in which a certain amount of pain or discomfort is mixed with pleasure, and among such states he mentions the triumphant conquest of painful obstacles, which could well describe the birth process. And he might even be referring to someone like, um, like Wendell when he writes of the disappointment of the hedonist who fails to find self-satisfaction where he seeks for it, adding that this disappointment is attended with pain or loss of pleasure. Now, uh, admittedly, I, I'm not trying to suggest that but when Sidgwick used the term self-satisfaction, he had masturbation in mind. Um, but what the passage does show is that he counts disappointment as a pain. And on that basis could plausibly reject Feldman's claim that Wendell, at the moment of his pathetic 12-hedon orgasm, um, which, of course, is also the moment at which he realises he's been the victim of a scam, is um, uh, experiencing... Uh, could reject the claim that, that he's experiencing a positive balance of pleasure over pain. Another hedonist uh, Feldman criticises is my Princeton colleague and Nobel laureate, Daniel Kahneman. According to Kahneman, it makes sense to say, Helen was happy in the month of March if, and I quote, she spent most of her time engaged in activities she would rather continue than stop, little time in situations you wish to escape, and, very important because life is short, not too much time in a neutral state in which you would not care either way. In that passage, Carnival does use the word activities rather than mental states or experiences, but he also talks elsewhere about experience and experience utility and the experiencing self, and I think it's clear that he is actually talking about uh, mental states here. Um, he talks, for example, about instant utility, adding that instant utility is best understood 
as the strength of the disposition to continue or to interrupt the current experience. So um, his view is a mental state view and one that distinguishes the mental states that contribute to happiness from those that do not by saying, just as Sidgwick does, that the former are the ones we desire to continue. In other words, pleasure or the positive mental state's utility is not just one particular type of sensation. It's not to be distinguished by a certain kind of feeling in the way that we might distinguish some particular sensations as having a certain type and then they're just differing along that continuum. But I think pleasure for Sidgwick and for Kahneman is much more widely varied and what determines that it's pleasure is that it's a state of consciousness that considered intrinsically just as a state of consciousness you would wish to continue, you would wish to have more of and conversely pain is a state of consciousness that considered intrinsically you would wish to have less of. And I'm going to come back to Kahneman's view at the end of, uh, towards the end of the talk. What does Feldman put up as an alternative to sensory hedonism? He talks about attitudinal hedonism, which he says is to have a positive balance of intrinsic or current attitudinal pleasure. That's probably not a very transparent phrase. What does it mean? Well, for example, he says... I might be pleased to learn by reading a newspaper that the distribution of bed nets by aid agencies has reduced the number of children dying from malaria. To say that I'm pleased to read that doesn't mean, Feldman says, that I have a kind of cheery feeling as I read it or that I have a warm inner glow as I read it. Um, it just means that I have this positive attitude towards it. And that's what how Feldman would replace or the, the classical utilitarian view as he sees it. But as, as Daniel Hebron points out in another recent uh, work on happiness called The Pursuit of Unhappiness, that view takes the fun out of pleasure. If the knowledge that fewer children died does not involve any positive emotions or feelings, does it really contribute to my, my happiness? I agree with Hebron, I don't think it does. So I reject Feldman's alternative to the traditional view as well as his critique of that view. Hebron, however, puts his own case against a hedonistic view of happiness. And I think it's more difficult to counter. His argument is that some pleasures, like the enjoyment of eating crackers, and he also mentions orgasms, I guess they just come into this discussion naturally, um, he thinks that some of these pleasures, at least, may be too superficial to have any impact on our happiness. As he puts it, these pleasures just don't get to us. They flip through consciousness, and that's the end of it. They leave our happiness level untouched. So, Hebron thinks that to feel pleasure is just to have an experience, which may or may not get to us, whereas to describe someone as happy is to say something that goes deeper to say something about their emotional state and their mood. Emotional states and moods are not just feelings, they're dispositions to feel something. To say that I'm irritable, for example, is not to say that I'm feeling irritated, irritated right now, but rather to say that I'm liable to become irritated, perhaps about trivial things that would not bother someone else who was in a more expansive mood than I am. 
Hebron grants that a person with a generally doer personality might, because of good fortune, be in high spirits for a time, and we could then consider her happy. But he says this would be a fragile sort of happiness, unlike the robust happiness of a person who has a propensity to have those positive moods and emotional states. Now, taking that as an account of common usage of how we ordinarily use the term happiness, which of course is a term in common use, not a philosophical term of art, quite possibly Hebron is right. That is the sense in which we most commonly use the term. And we could then accept his view that happiness refers not to the surplus of pleasure over pain that the classical utilitarians used it to refer to, but to having uh, but to having a certain emotional state. The question is, does this mean that the classical utilitarians were mistaken? Excuse me. <clears throat> okay, section three, happiness, utilitarianism and value. If we agree that Hebron's account of happiness gets the ordinary concept right, what follows? He himself is clear that to give an account of happiness has no implications for a theory of value as such. So you could reject the hedonistic account of happiness without rejecting the hedonistic account of value. All utilitarians need to do, he says, is grant that their theories are about pleasure and not about happiness. And given Hebron's account of happiness, I think that's a plausible view. If happiness is, at least in part, a disposition to have certain feelings under certain conditions, how could that be good in itself? What would have to be good, surely, is the feelings that it's a disposition to have, not having the disposition as such. So utilitarians then would have to change their vocabulary and speak of pleasure rather than of happiness. But they wouldn't have to change the utilitarian conclusions about what we ought to do. Still, the, you, might, you might feel the utilitarianism would be less persuasive if they had to talk about maximising the greatest pleasure for the greatest number rather than the greatest happiness of the, for the greatest number. At least, utilitarians need to explain why, on their view, happiness is important. But I think Hebron's own account provides such an explanation. To be happy, on his, his view, is to be in a certain emotional state which makes it likely that you'll experience pleasure. He says, I quote uh, one of these states, it's, it's the single most important determinant happiness of our hedonic states. So if we combine the classical utilitarian view that the only thing of intrinsic value is pleasure with Hebron's view that happiness consists of a set of emotional states, we reach the conclusion that happiness is instrumentally good, not intrinsically good. Pleasure, in the sense of being in a positive hedonic state, is intrinsically good, and happy people are more likely to experience this positive hedonic state, so happiness is an important instrumental good. And I think we can also use this account to explain why happiness is important in practical deliberation. As Hebron himself argues, it's often easier to work out when making an important choice whether it will lead to you being happy or unhappy or other people being happy or unhappy than whether it will maximise hedonic states. Think, for example, of making a career choice. 
you might think of a choice between two different careers, that um, one of them will lead you to be stressed and anxious, um, whereas the other will give you more peace of mind. So those are not intrinsically good things themselves, but they're likely to contribute to your happiness or your unhappiness, of course, in a a career that leads you to be more stressed than anxious, and therefore to mean that you less frequently have positive hedonic states. So I think we can explain why, in terms of making choices, happiness might come to our mind more easily than pleasure, because it just may be more easily to work out what impact the choices will have on this very basic and important instrumental good that is likely to lead to the actual intrinsic good. Section four, arguing for the value of mental states, conscious states. What I've argued so far is that criticisms of hedonism as an account of happiness don't exclude the possibility that pleasure is the only thing of intrinsic value. But I haven't yet argued that pleasure is of ultimate value, or indeed of of intrinsic value at all, let alone the only thing of intrinsic value. Why might we think that it is? Well, let's look at how Sidgwick argues for pleasure as the ultimate value. He begins with a claim that when we think about what we judge to be good, everything that can survive the scrutiny of careful reflection has some connection to human existence or at least to some consciousness or feeling. And in other parts of the methods of ethics, he explicitly includes uh, animal consciousness as part of the good. So what we're talking about here is uh, the states of... he's, He's saying that anything that can survive the scrutiny of careful reflection in terms of being judged to be good has to be a conscious state of some sentient being, human or animal. He considers possible counterexamples to the claim. He notes, for example, that we commonly judge inanimate objects or scenes to be good because they're beautiful or bad because they're ugly. But, he goes on to say, no one would consider it rational to aim at the production of beauty in external nature apart from any possible contemplation of it by human beings. Famously, uh, shortly after that, in... uh, Principia Ethica, G.E. Moore did challenge that claim and asked the reader to imagine two possible worlds, one as beautiful as you can possibly make it, the other as ugly as you can possibly make it, simply uh, one heap of filth, uh, uh, in Moore's phrase, um, with no redeeming feature, and grant that no human being or no sentient being will ever see either world, nevertheless, Moore, in Principia Ethica, said it's rational to prefer that the beautiful world should exist rather than the ugly world. Well, you can consult your own intuitions on this. Um, I think if we can really imagine that world with no being appreciating it, then it really doesn't make any difference. Of course, for us, since we're imagining it, we may like to imagine the beautiful world. That's a more pleasant experience for us, but we have to somehow subtract that from the process of doing this thought experiment, um, and then I don't think it makes a difference. And uh, incidentally, Moore himself, uh, later on in his little book, Ethics, um, abandoned uh, that view about uh, the worlds without consciousness and agreed with Sidgwick 
that nothing is intrinsically good unless it has some relation to consciousness. But even if uh, we agree that uh, such things as beauty and knowledge are only good in some relationship to human beings or to minds of some kind, somebody might say that it would be reasonable to be concerned with producing them for their own sake and take them as ultimate ends, irrespective of who may come to uh, uh, appreciate the beauty or gain in knowledge. Um, but Sidgwick's argument is that they can only be ultimately good if they lead either to happiness or to the perfection of excellence of human existence. In other words, he's saying these goods have to be connected with human existence in some way, and he's now considering, yes, but maybe they don't have to be connected with human existence in terms of happiness. Maybe they are connected with human existence in terms of achieving certain perfections or excellences which are intrinsically good in themselves. That idea that uh, what is intrinsically good is perfection or excellence probably sounds a little odd to modern ears um, in a more egalitarian kind of era, um, but it certainly is an ancient tradition which goes, can be traced back at least to, to, to ancient Greece and to Aristotle and uh, uh, came into Western thought or Aristotle's version of this idea came into Western thinking through Aquinas and you can find it today in contemporary writers like John Finnis, who are in that, uh, loosely in that uh, Thomistic tradition. But I think the Aristotelian version of uh, excellences makes sense only within a pre-Darwinian view of the world. That is, a view that, that the world exists for some purpose, and uh, the purpose is for us to achieve these highest goods, uh, in particular for Aristotle, to perfect our rationality, uh, which is the highest good. Uh, if we abandon the idea that the world exists for a purpose, then at least that Aristotelian way of arguing for excellences as intrinsic good, uh, I think, doesn't really work. Um, because human nature is not then going to necessarily be intrinsically good. There may be aspects of our nature that we don't want to perfect, uh, like aggression, for example, which uh, seems on a Darwinian view to be one aspect of our human nature. There are other forms of perfectionism too. One is related to the idea of living virtuously. And virtue ethics has had something of a revival in recent years. But I think Sidgwick's criticism of virtue ethics is something that uh, applies still to modern virtue ethics, at least if the virtue ethicist is trying to offer a comprehensive normative ethical theory. What Sidgwick says is that to know what qualities are virtues, we need to know what we ought to do. You can't just have the ideas of virtues independently of some idea of what we ought to do. And to know what we ought to do, we have to define what the good is. Therefore, to define the ultimate good as virtue is just to go round in a circle. And maybe that can be made clearer if we look at some specific virtues. Sidgwick, uh, for instance, gives the example of frugality which was a virtue in Sidgwick's day. I guess people didn't get regular mail asking them to take out more credit cards um, when Sidgwick was around. Um, so when does frugality pass over into the vice of meanness, Sidgwick asks? Or when does courage become foolhardiness? When do candor or generosity or humility become excessive? Um, Sidgwick argues 
you can only answer those questions by having a notion of what is good and without such a notion virtue theory would be seriously incomplete. Finally, just one third form of perfectionism. John Rawls, uh, in A Theory of Justice, talked about perfectionism as simply the idea that achieving excellence, whether in art or science or culture, trumps all other values. So for a perfectionist, if the achievements of ancient Greece could only uh, be realised because they had slaves, then slavery was justified. That, of course, is not Rawls's view. Um, but uh, uh, Sidgwick does discuss uh, such a view too, and he argues that however immediately the excellent quality of such gifts and skills may be recognised and admired, reflection shows that they're only valuable on account of the good or desirable conscious life in which they are or will be actualised, or which will be somehow promoted by their exercise. In other words, he's sticking to a mental state view and saying that art, science and philosophy are good only insofar as they promote or are part of a desirable conscious life. And again, you have to ask yourself, does reflection so show that? Sedgwick is appealing to your considered judgment. And again, I would say at least that mine does. It may not be true of all of you, but... I think if art, science and philosophy had no positive effect on the conscious lives of sentient beings at all, it would not be valuable. So Sidgwick at this stage is taking his argument to show that ultimate goodness is good or desirable consciousness or sentient life. There's a well-known objection to this view, a modern objection that Sidgwick didn't, of course, explicitly consider, although he does say some things relevant to it. It was put forward by Robert Nozick, and I'll read you a couple of relevant passages. Suppose there were an experience machine that could give you any experience you desired. Super-duper neuropsychologists could stimulate your brain so that you would think and feel that you were writing a great novel, or making a friend, or reading an interesting book. All the time you would be floating in a tank with electrodes attached to your brain. Should you plug into this machine for life, pre-programming pre -programming your life desires? Of course, while in the tank, you won't know that you're there. You'll think it's all actually happening. Others can also plug in to have the experiences they want, so there's no need to stay unplugged to serve them. And Nozick says we should ignore problems such as who's going to service the machines if everyone plugs in. The question is, would you plug in? And the point of the example, of course, is that Nozick expects us to say, no, I would not plug into the experience machine. And if you do say no, that surely implies that something matters to you other than conscious experiences, other than how your life feels from the inside. Because if you do plug in, you can have the best possible conscious experiences you can imagine of the whole range of pleasures. This is not like Feldman's criticism of just sensory pleasures, because if you want the pleasure of making a friend or reading a good book or climbing Mount Everest, we can program the machine to give it to you. But, Nozick says, we don't want that. We want to be a certain kind of person, loving, brave, intelligent, and so on, not just a body floating in a tank. We want to live in contact with reality. The experience machine is a powerful reason for rejecting ethical hedonism. 
But um, does the conclusion really follow from this example? It's true that we can have desires for things that are not mental states, that we do have such desires. For example, I might desire that the people I consider to be my friends like and respect me. Suppose also, in fact, none of these people like or respect me. They think that I'm a conceited fool. But they are very well-intentioned people, and they know about my desire, and they don't wish to cause me distress, so they all pretend to like and respect me. <laughs> and they do this so well that I never know the difference. I live to a ripe old age. I die without ever knowing that I was mistaken about the opinions of the people I took to be my friends. Although I believe that my desire to be liked and respected was satisfied, there's clearly a sense in which it was not. And the desire theory, that's the theory that, as I said, I, I certainly used to hold for a long time, the desire theory does not locate ultimate value in mental states alone. And so it gives you an easy response to the experience machine thought experiment. If we don't, if we, if we don't want those illusions, then uh, the desire theory or the preference utilitarian does not have to say that we should plug in. If our desire is to live in contact with reality, it follows from, for the preference utilitarian that this is what we should indeed do. So as I say, that was an example that was one of the factors not the only one, but one of the factors that uh, uh, led me to think that a preference-based view is better than a hedonistic view. But I'm no longer convinced that the experience machine is a sufficient reason for abandoning hedonism in favour of a desire-based theory of value. I recognise the strength of the intuitions we have against plugging into the machine. They're in part, I believe, the result of our nature as purposive beings. For thousands of generations, in the world in which our ancestors were surviving, co uh, both competing and cooperating with other intelligent beings, to improve their chances of survival and the survival of their offspring, they had to act purposively. They couldn't just act for the pleasures of the moment. So we've evolved a need to act purposively and a strong tendency to override our immediate pleasures and pains for the sake of larger purposes. That leads to what's sometimes called the paradox of hedonism, the idea that we're most likely to find pleasure by setting ourselves certain purposes and goals that stand apart from our own desire for pleasure. If you directly say, I'm going to do what will give me the most pleasure now, uh, the paradox of hedonism suggests you're not going to find it. But the experience machine objection asks us to imagine a world in which everyone's needs can be taken care of completely forever. And that includes not only their needs for food and shelter, but for the avoidance of whatever experiences they wish to avoid. In such a radically different world, all of our usual purposes become OTOs. There's no need for us to save for old age, ensure that our children and grandchildren get a good education, or even to seek to end world poverty or protect human rights. To make the example complete, I guess we have to say there's no need for us to work to protect the welfare of animals either. Uh, I suppose that might mean that they get their own experience machines. I'm not quite sure what Nozick had in mind there. But um, 
if, I, if, if, if we still have this need to live to some purpose, then it's no wonder that we think that there is something wrong with plugging into the experience machine. Um, the situation resembles that of asking somebody to drink a glass of apple juice in which just in front of their eyes you have taken a roach carefully sterilized in a med medical sterilizing cabinet and then dipped it into the apple juice and withdrawn it. Uh, this is an experiment that has been done by Jonathan Haidt, uh, among others. Um, and we know that many people are reluctant to drink the apple juice, even though previously they've expressed a desire to drink some apple juice. So intellectually we can grasp that there's nothing wrong with the apple juice that had the roach, sterilised roach dipped into it, but we can't quite get rid of that intuition. Um, so I'm suggesting that maybe something similar is going on here with our intuition that even in the circumstances described very imaginary circumstances, quite beyond reality, that uh, we would not uh, want to plug into the experience machine. There are other reasons too, of course. One might be that we just don't believe that the technology is foolproof. There's a problem of uh, accepting the uh, hypothesis and so on. Um, of course, we've, since Nozick put this example, we've become familiar with the idea from films like The Matrix, um, but uh, we don't like that idea either because we were being exploited by intelligent machines who needed our body heat to provide energy for some further bizarre reason that's difficult to understand. Um, but um, uh, you have to imagine that in Nozick's machines uh, you know that none of this is going to happen. No one is going to suffer or will be. Still, the suspicion that something will go wrong is hard to avoid. There's another possible factor going on here that's been exposed by some empirical research by Philippe de Brigade. Um, he asked people to imagine, um, he, he was interested in finding uh, why people are reluctant to enter the experience machine, or if indeed they are. So he asked people to imagine that they're already connected to an experience machine and now face the choice of either remaining connected or going back to live in reality. And he randomly offered them one of three vignettes. In what he called the neutral vignette, you're simply told that you can go back to reality if you like, but not given any information about what reality will be like for you. In the negative vignette, you're told that in reality, you're a prisoner in a maximum security prison. And in the positive vignette, you're told that in reality, you are a multimillionaire artist living in Monaco. Now, of those participants given the neutral vignette, 46% said they would prefer to stay plugged into the experience machine. Among those giving the negative vignette, that figure rose to 87%. That's not so surprising, for the alternative for them was life in a maximum security prison. But most surprisingly of all, of those given the positive vignette, exactly half preferred to stay connected to the machine rather than return to reality as a multimillionaire artist living in Monaco. Monaco has to do a bit better in its public relations, obviously. <laughs> so these results don't support Nozick's confident judgment that we prefer to live in reality rather than plugged into a machine. They also, though, admittedly, don't support the hedonistic view that what people are choosing to do is to maximise their pleasure. But what is interesting, and the reason why Brigade asked the, de Brigade asked the question the way he did, is that the status quo bias is playing a role here. So the status quo bias, for those who are not familiar, is a well-known psychological ph phenomenon. It's been studied in various ways, 
that suggest that people are reluctant to depart from the status quo. So if you give them $2 and, for example, and say for $2 you can buy this cup, um, then uh, let's say relatively uh, many people will think, oh, that's a nice cup, sure, here's $2, I'll, um, I'll buy it. But if you um, give them the cup and say, here's your cup, and somebody offers them uh, $2 for it, I think I've got this slightly wrong, sorry, but the idea is what, whatever you give them is something their endowment and they're reluctant to depart from it. So um, the same kind of thing seems to be going on here, that one of the reasons why we may be reluctant to enter into the experience machine is we're reasonably content with the status quo. And so we don't want to give it up for something unknown. But if you ask people to imagine, even just imagine, that they are plugged into the machine and then that they move from that to reality, then they are also more reluctant to abandon the status quo. And one way of confirming that, once de Brigade had his results, he then put a fourth vignette to people, identical to the neutral one, except that the participants were told that life outside the machine is not at all like the life you experienced so far. That information dropped the number of people who were prepared to disconnect from 50% to 41%. Not a huge difference, but it did appear to have an effect. So um, that also suggests that the experience machine is not a decisive objection to the view that what is ultimately good is a state of consciousness. Section 7, the experiencing self and the remembering self. Many attempts to survey happiness ask people how satisfied they are with their life. For example, there's something called the Gallup World Poll, which has many questions. One section is on well-being, and under well-being, the Gallup World Poll asks people to give a number between 1 and 10, indicating their answer to the question, all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole these days? Haybrun and Feldman have pointed out that for various reasons, this asks a different question from how happy are you now? You might be satisfied, but you might be satisfied because you have low expectations. Some people might think, for example, well, how happy can a sinner like me expect to be? Or someone who has uh, internalized the repressive attitudes of her society towards women might uh, also be fairly, be not very happy at all, but still satisfied with her life. The same might be true if you're a member of a low caste or an ethnic minority. Daniel Kahneman, who I mentioned earlier, together with uh, uh, Angus Deaton, has shown another interesting distinction between the answers that Americans, at least, give to Gallup's life satisfaction question and the answers they give to questions about their emotional well-being. So on the one hand, an answer to the question that I just gave you, how satisfied are you, all things considered, with your life these days, with uh, questions that indicate the emotional quality of an individual's everyday experiences, the frequency and intensity of experiences of joy, stress, sadness, anger, and affection that make one's life pleasant or unpleasant. According to Kahneman and, and Deaton, whereas the higher your income, the higher life satisfaction you are likely to report, your emotional well-being shows no further increases once your income reaches $75,000 per annum, as I say, for Americans. 
And this is an interesting um, answer that there's been a lot of discussion uh, about whether indeed uh, happiness does increase with income. For many years it was believed that it did not, that it uh, uh, increased only up to a certain plateau and then that it just plateaued. Uh, then Kahneman and Deaton argued uh, that that was wrong. Uh, Deaton in particular initially and a couple of other people argued that in fact it does go up indefinitely, although admittedly it goes up much more slowly only after uh, that plateau, but they claimed it did increase. Now it seems that the answer is it depends exactly on what you're measuring. Whether you're measuring how people answer the life satisfaction question, in which case yes it does continue to go up even after the plateau, although more slowly than before, or whether it's these, uh, this emotional well-being, that is the frequency of these experiences, which obviously is closer to what I've been talking about, the hedonistic view of pleasure and pain, and there it does seem that it plateaus uh, after this reasonably comfortable level of 75,000 per annum. And uh, as part of this uh, discussion and, and other writings, Kahneman has, it's a good thing that I got a, a laptop here rather than paper, I guess, isn't it? Um, Kahneman has developed the distinction between the experiencing self and the remembering self. And here's one way of illustrating that distinction. Patients undergoing a colonoscopy, thank you, patients undergoing a colonoscopy were asked to report at intervals the level of pain or discomfort they were feeling. It's pretty amazing that people consent to this research, I think. <laughs> Just what you need, you're undergoing a colonoscopy and there's some guy asking you, how does it feel now? How bad is it now? <laughs> Give me a number, one out of ten, what it's like now. And it seems like people did this. Then after the procedure was over, they were asked to assess how bad it was and to make a hypothetical choice between having it repeated or having a barium enema. Also not a very pleasant experience. And the results were surprising. So I'll take just a, two sample patients here. Patients A and B might have identically painful experiences for the first 10 minutes of the colonoscopy. Suppose that patient A's experience ends at that point after 10 minutes. Then the colonoscopy is over. He feels no more pain. Whereas patient B's experience, having the identical first 10 minutes as patient A, continues for another five minutes at a level that he still finds painful, but not as severely painful as the first 10 minutes. Okay, so first question, who suffered the most pain? Let me ask you, actually, a show of hands, how many of you think A suffered the most pain? How many of you think B suffered the most pain? Well, of those who are dare to show your hands, the great majority is for B. I think that's right. Clearly B did. For the first 10 minutes, he had just as much pain as A, and then he had an additional five minutes of some pain while A was feeling no pain at all. Yet when we ask the patients, after the experience is all over, to rate the experience, typically A rates it worse than B, and is less willing to repeat the procedure. And this is not just in colonoscopies, Kahneman has repeated this um, by getting people to uh, put their arm into extremely cold water for uh, two minutes and then for one further minute into water that is still painfully cold but not as cold as it was uh, for the first two minutes. And you get the same result. The, patient, the people who put their arm in the extremely cold water for two minutes and then take it out altogether describe it afterwards as a worse experience than the people who had the one extra minute of still uncomfortably cold water. 
Kahneman calls this phenomenon duration neglect, and he considers it a focusing illusion. We focus on the last moments of the experience rather than the entire experience. And he goes so far as to say that we have two selves, the experiencing self and the remembering self. When we ask questions about life satisfaction, we are necessarily addressing ourselves to the remembering self. We're asking the self to remember what these last few days have been like. We can only access the experiencing self if we interrupt it at frequent intervals to ask, as I said, what is it like now? And Kahneman has done this not just for the patients in colonoscopies, but for a larger number of subjects going about their daily lives. And it's interesting how technology makes this easier to do. He programs their mobile phones to interrupt them at very random intervals throughout their lives, and then they have to put in a number between 0 and 10 uh, to indicate the quality of their experience at that particular moment. And then he can get all of these results and uh, tabulate them and associate them with what they were doing at particular times and so on. But given this distinction, we then face a value question. What is of ultimate value? Is it the quality of life of the experiencing self or of the remembering self? Kahneman seems to lean towards the experiencing self, saying the logic of duration waiting is compelling. Duration waiting, of course, being the idea that we should take account of how long an experience lasts. And he's also written that the total utility of an episode is a product of average instant utility, the average level, and the duration. And that retrospective evaluation leads to erroneous estimates of the true total utility of past experiences. But he also says that duration waiting can't be considered a complete theory of well-being because individuals identify with their remembering self and care about their story. Quote, a theory of well-being that ignores what people want cannot be sustained. So his conclusion is that the remembering self and the experiencing self must both be considered. Their interests don't coincide, but they both need to be taken into account. That's from his most recent book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And then he adds, philosophers could struggle with these questions for a long time. No doubt they could, and perhaps they will. But Sidgwick did actually think about these questions, and uh, without, of course, knowing exactly this distinction that Kahneman is drawing, but he did conclude that we should have impartial concern for all parts of our conscious life. That's a quote, and it is, of course, Kahneman's principle of duration waiting. I agree. It's true that individuals identify with their remembering self and care about their story, but presumably this actually has some impact on their experiences. When they're thinking about their story, remembering their, their past or recent experiences, and feeling positively about this, this is a positive experience that improves their, their current experience. And to the extent that caring, their caring about the story affects the quality of their experience, of course it does matter on the hedonistic view of ultimate value. To the extent that it doesn't affect the quality of their experiences, it doesn't matter on that theory. So um, I'm supporting the experiencing self over the remembering self in this choice. Is it true, as Kahneman says, that a theory of well-being that ignores what people want cannot be sustained. I certainly would have thought that in the past. But now I think that perhaps the only way in which that's true is that politically it can't be sustained. 
if government set out to measure happiness and to promote it, they'd better come up with an idea of happiness that people want and are prepared to support. It's the remembering self that votes, after all, not the experiencing self. But that's a problem for democratic theory and political philosophy rather than for the area of ethics that inquires into ultimate value. Okay, brief conclusion. The 21st century is on track to become the happiness century, at least if we can judge by its first dozen or so years. The small Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan has long had a policy of promoting gross national happiness rather than gross national product. And work in this area has accelerated since Bhutan became a constitutional monarchy and a democratic monarchy in 2008. That was also the year in which the French president Nicolas Sarkozy set up a commission chaired by the economist Joseph Stiglitz and including also Amartya Sen and Jean-Paul Fitoussi to recommend ways of measuring social progress as well as economic performance. Last year, Bhutan achieved a diplomatic success by persuading the United Nations General Assembly to support a non-binding resolution encouraging member states to undertake steps that give more importance to happiness and well-being in determining how to achieve and measure social and economic development. And uh, uh, earlier this month, there was a United Nations meeting in, in New York to discuss that issue further. This year, we've also seen the United Kingdom begin surveying the public with a view to establishing a measure of societal well-being. And the United States Department of Health and Human Services has set up a panel um, of experts in psychology and economics including Daniel Kahneman, to try to define reliable measures of subjective well-being. If the panel is successful, these measures could become official government statistics. Some Americans responding to the recent announcement of this panel have voiced fears that it could herald more government interference in our lives. In my view, though, Americans have long had an exaggerated suspicion of the dangers of government interference and it's already cost them the kind of universal health care system that uh, in other countries, in other developed countries, uh, there's a political consensus about the desirability of that crosses the liberal conservative divide. Just as governments see it as their function to promote opportunities for business development that lead to economic growth, so I don't see why they should not see it as their function to promote individual choices that lead to greater personal happiness, or indeed to... Uh, a maximization of pleasure over pain. After all, um, economic growth is only a means to an end. Um, I've argued that happiness is also a means to an end, but I think happiness comes closer to the uh, ultimate end that I've defended, at least uh, partially defended, of um, uh, intrinsic value of uh, a maximization of desirable consciousness, as Sidgwick would have called it, or uh, pleasant experiences over painful ones. And uh, that seems to me, therefore, to be a desirable thing for governments to do. Thank you um, uh, for your attention. I hope that I've, uh, you've found the lecture not only in a, a pleasurable experience, but that I've ended on a high note. Um, <laughs> and I look forward to your questions. Besides the idea of happiness, which in my opinion is what happens to us, being instrumental, um, what about inner joy, which is what I really want? Uh, so 
If we're talking about joy, um, I think we are talking about experiences. Uh, we are talking about um, a conscious mental state, um, not a disposition. So insofar as you're actually experiencing joy, uh, certainly that would count as uh, a pleasure in the term that I'm using it, uh, and therefore as being something of ultimate value. OK, thank you. Thank you. Little hypothetical thing. I, this is a question for you and a question for myself. If you could clone yourself into a thousand experience machines in perpetuity, would you do it? <laughs> a, a good experience sure. machines. Um, OK, so... So in a way, you're asking a somewhat different question from the one I've addressed, because you're asking if um, this intrinsic value that I've talked about is such that the more of it, the better, even if that means bringing new beings into existence rather than raising the intrinsic value of the lives of existing beings. Um, my answer to that is yes. I, would think, I do think it would be a good thing to do. Of course, unfortunately, in the planet that we're living on, we have limited resources, and there would be negative aspects of it there. But if we can imagine these experience machines, we can surely also imagine a planet with limitless resources or the ability to colonize other planets. So then, yes, I, I do think that would be a good thing to do. Hello. Um, I'm currently studying one of your books in one of my philosophy classes, The Life You Can Save. And uh, I was wondering, uh, when you think about happiness, do you think we have an obligation as individuals to sacrifice our own happiness if it would increase more than that much happiness in others, if we could somehow measure that? Uh, okay, so um, my answer to that is also yes, um, that that is an obligation in the sense that it is the right thing to do. Utilitarians typically don't draw much of a distinction between what we ought to do, what's the right thing to do, what we have an obligation to do, and some other ethics. These are uh, different categories. Um, and uh, in the life you can save, as you might know, I do talk about how demanding an ethic can reasonably be. And I consider essentially the question that you're asking about relieving suffering, relieving extreme poverty, more than about promoting happiness. But these are two sides of the same coin. And very often, relieving suffering is the most effective way we can promote happiness. Um, and what I say there, just, just briefly for those not familiar with it, is that uh, at a theoretical level, the ethic that I'm proposing is very demanding and has exactly the implications that you make, that if we could reduce suffering uh, by more than it would cost us in terms of increasing our own suffering, we ought to do that. But I also think that in terms of um, an ethic that can be effective in getting people to act and in encouraging people to act, uh, in other words, an ethic that we ought to advocate, not just as philosophers, but as campaigners for social change. Um, that is too demanding. And it can be off-putting to people to think that ethics is so demanding. So at the end of The Life You Can Save, and also for those who don't want to buy the book, um, uh, there's a website that I've put up, the same name, thelifeyoucansave.com, where I've um, put this up. I've suggested a, a kind of graduated table of what people might consider giving, um, in proportion to their income, and suggested that if you, do, if you meet that level, even though you could still give more and not be making uh, a sacrifice as great as the gain that you would be achieving, you might still feel that you've done enough to um, satisfy a kind of decent ethical minimum. 
But but is it still doing something wrong if we continue to be happy while others are are suffering? Um, as I say, in that yes, I mean, if if you ask me, quay philosopher, is that still doing something wrong? I would have to say yes. If you ask me, as campaigner, I'm, am I going to go and tell people who are meeting or even exceeding the standard that I put forward um, that they're doing something wrong because they could give still more? I'm not going to because that would not have the best consequences, and as a utilitarian, I'm concerned about having the best consequences. Thank you. Hey, thanks for coming out, Professor Singer. I really Thank appreciate you. it. You know, you spoke about the government um, promoting personal choices to derive pleasure over pain. You know, I guess my question was, what about, or what would you say to somebody who implies that people derive a bit of pleasure or derive pleasure from inflicting pain on others. You know, I'm not talking about you know, extreme psychosis, but you know, I think to a certain extent, it seems like you know, we do derive a bit of pleasure from inflicting pain on others. Uh, so are, are we talking about consenting others here? I mean, are we talking about uh, <laughs> sexual relationships uh, that are a little like this, or are we just, or are we just talking about um, well, schadenfreude for, or something like sure. that? Well, for instance, you know, economic exploitation. You know? I don't see... You see, I, I don't see the... I mean, it depends what you mean by derived pleasure from inflicting pain on others. I mean, you can think of the most rapacious, exploitative um, capitalist you like, but typically I think that what they're trying to do is to accumulate as much wealth or resources for themselves, and they just don't care about the impact that it has on others. And I think if you said to them, look, by snapping your fingers you could make your workers happier, um, it would not um, cost you anything at all, um, I think most of them would say, fine, I'll snap my fingers. You know, it's not that they're, that they're sadists. Um, it's not that they enjoy the fact that, that they're screwing the workers. It's just that they, without screwing the workers in the real world, they wouldn't get quite as much for themselves, we assume. I mean, that, this may not or may not be good economics, but, but, we, but I assume, or they assume. So um, in that sense, I think that uh, you know, then the, the suffering of others is, is a byproduct. It's not something that they're really aiming at. If they were aiming at it, um, then, again, sort of following up from the last question, if they're inflicting more suffering on others than they're getting out of it, clearly that's, that's going to be wrong by any standard. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Uh, given that people watch movies and listen to recorded music, why is it that uh, only 50% of the people would pluck into Nosey's much more exciting pleasure <laughs> Well, um, they don't uh, watch movies or listen to music, um, I guess, all the time. Um, certainly they don't. Uh, the movie is the more total immersion sort of experience. Um, you know, most people only go to one movie or uh, maybe two movies at the most, then they get out in the real world. Um, so I suppose that's part of the difference. Also, though, they, they know when they're in the movie that this is an illusion, um, and uh, that they can leave it at any time. So perhaps that's uh, one difference between the choices. Thanks. Thanks. Hello, hi, Mr. Singer. Um, currently in my uh, philosophy class, we were going over bestiality, whether it was morally acceptable or not. I was just wondering, if, what were your views on that? I know it's a little different from everybody else's question. <laughs> right, this, this, this topic keeps coming up. And <laughs> I... I guess I can't deny that it is relevant to uh, discussions of pleasure and pain. Um, um, all I ever wrote on this one, I once reviewed a book about bestiality, but um, 
uh, it, it does keep coming back. So I, I, I'll give you my view um, anyway. I'm not uh, troubled by it. Um, I think, uh, in general, um, humans having sex with animals is wrong because, in general, it inflicts uh, pain and distress on the animals. But, um, uh, and so it should be prosecuted under, under cruelty laws, which obviously I strongly support and, in fact, think should be made more severe. Um, but uh, there are cases of people having sex with animals uh, which do not involve suffering uh, by the animals. Uh, there are some cases in which um, you could even say the animal uh, may consent to the act. The animal has uh, every opportunity to walk away or not be near the human who's uh, engaging in this practice, um, but uh, does not do so. Um, so interesting question is, why do we still have a taboo about those sexual relations, um, which sometimes uh, occur from people who actually have very strong positive attitudes towards animals. In fact, I know one of them who said to me, how is it that people think it's okay to eat animals, but don't think it's okay to have sex with them, even when they're in <laughs> able to stop having the sex if they want to? Um, so there is that, that kind of attitude. Uh, and, and it is interesting that, you know, we've had lots of taboos against basically non-reproductive sex, uh, right? We've had um, taboos, most obviously, against uh, homosexual relations, which fortunately have uh, now broken down. Uh, we've had taboos against uh, oral sex, which have also now uh, broken down. But um, the taboo against uh, sex with animals, uh, even in the circumstances that I described, has not. Um, so I'm not saying that in any way it's normal or natural or, uh, you know, I'm not saying that I, uh, in that sense, am positively approving this, or as some people have suggested in things that they've written about my views. But I uh, honestly don't see why there should be uh, criminal sanctions against it in the specific group of cases that I've mentioned. Thank, Thank you. you. So some people have mentioned an objection to the, well not an objection, a modification to the experience machine where we experience a little bit of pain to make the experience more realistic. Do you think it's intrinsic in humans to want to desire some level of pain? Um, no, I don't think it's intrinsic in humans to want to desire some level of pain, um, but it may be that some pleasures can only be achieved with some level of pain, that uh, if, for example, um, the pleasures of uh, overcoming a challenge. As I said, Sidgwick already mentions that triumphant overcoming of obstacles in a way that involves pain. So that could be the, the climbing Everest case, or it could be the running a marathon uh, sort of case. And um, some people, I think, do feel that these pleasures are somehow uh, worth it and um, better pleasures than, than the other pleasures that you get not in that way. So I think that's why... Um, there is this suggested modification, as you say, that it um, introduces this element uh, that you know, other people think that, that you need the contrast, that without some elements of pain, you wouldn't have uh, the ability to experience and really appreciate the pleasures. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I guess uh, one of the consequences of your uh, work in animal rights, um, in addition to vegetarianism, has been sort of this ethical uh, meat and... and you know, more humanely produced animals that still end up killing. And, and so I guess I'm wondering, assuming that that, that can be uh, assumed to be, you know, accurate description of how the animal is treated during its life and the suffering is, is, is not there. I'm wondering 
the actual act of killing, can you justify or, or justify opposition to it in, from a, a preference utilitarian standpoint or, or do not? Or, you know, in, in the philosopher's hat, what would you say? And I guess maybe a campaigner's, uh, I guess, hat as well, is sort of how you would treat the actual, the act of the killing, uh, setting aside the, the treatment and the suffering of the animal during its life. Yeah, well, this is another interesting question that, that uh, does raise some of the differences between the preference view and the hedonistic view. Um, so what I've argued in uh, Practical Ethics and, and other works written from a preference utilitarian standpoint is that the, the, ex the extent to which killing is wrong depends at least partly on the capacity of the being killed to have desires about the future. So I've argued that um, beings... Uh, that are self-aware, that see themselves as existing over time, um, can have desires for the future, can want to go on living in the future, and that that makes killing them more seriously wrong than it makes killing beings that lack that kind of capacity for desires. So on this view, um, killing some species of animals might be more serious than others. Chimpanzees, for example, it seems, do have some sense of self that enables them to project themselves into the future in some ways, um, but uh, perhaps fish don't. Um, you know, it's hard to know exactly where you would draw that line. And of course the line also applies with humans, um, both in terms of uh, comparing newborn infants with older children and comparing humans with some profound intellectual disabilities with others uh, without such profound intellectual disabilities. So that's led me to... Um, views about killing both for animals and for humans uh, that have also been controversial. Uh, and I suppose my answer to your question on the preference utilitarian view would be if the animal does not have self-awareness, um, then the killing in itself is not intrinsically wrong. Um, although uh, there is a lot more to be said, including from a practical point of view about what raising of animals commercially, even with reasonably good animal welfare standards, uh, does to our attitudes for an to animals and to the likelihood that they will be well looked after. One of the interesting differences with moving towards the kind of hedonistic view that I'm exploring in uh, this talk and in this work is that it actually gives you only an indirect justification for drawing this distinction between beings that are more self-aware and those that are not self-aware. Because it doesn't make any difference you know, if the animal is killed instantly to the actual amount of pleasure or pain that it experiences. The only difference that it makes is that you could say, uh, and in fact Bentham says this somewhere, that uh, when you have beings with uh, the ability to understand that they have a future and to know things about their environment, killing one of them is likely to cause fear and apprehension in others who know that therefore they could be ki being killed, that, that killing is something that happens, and therefore are in fear of being killed themselves. Whereas, again, if you talk about beings with no self-awareness, they can't have that apprehension. And so that draws a somewhat similar line, but for different reasons, again, between different categories of human beings and between humans and at least some non-human animals. Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank you for coming out. Um, you've actually inspired a paper that I'm writing uh, this semester. Uh, my question is, if you could reach worldwide fa fairness, your subjective view of it for all sentient beings, but that would be contingent on the ceasing of your existence, 
um, would you take that? And moreover, is that because reaching fairness makes you happy? Or is happiness and fairness completely independent? And lastly, what is the limit on the size of a system's uh, uh, population of fairness where you would no longer consent? So if I understand your question, it's a kind of a bit like the one that Dostoevsky asks um, in uh, The Brothers Karamazov, except that instead of sacrificing the uh, little child in order to produce uh, heaven on earth or utopia for, forever after, uh, you have to sacrifice yourself. Is, is that roughly right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, my answer to that is, uh, yes, I definitely ought to sacrifice myself for that purpose. Um, that's not a prediction as to whether I would or would not. I guess I hope that I would do so. It would certainly not be for my own happiness, um, because after I sacrifice myself, I have no further happiness, um, and uh, you know, presumably my happiness would be, would be brief. Um, uh, now, you could perhaps say, well, but if you didn't do it, you would be unhappy for the rest of your life, because you would have this on your conscience, that there was all this suffering going on, and you could have stopped it, but you didn't. Um, so I guess you could argue that, but, but for me, really, the, you know, the, the relevant thing is that it's clearly what you ought to do. If you don't do it, then you're being extremely selfish, um, but you know, I certainly don't claim to be a saint, and that's why I'm not making any prediction. I hope that I would be able to do it. Now, your question then had a little sting in your tail, which I think was how large does the population have to be? So at that's the moment, is that right? Intermediate part of, does that mean that fairness and happiness are independent, or ah. is your... Is your fairness dependent on happiness? You kind of touched on it, but are yeah. they completely different? I was taking, okay, so if, again, for me, fairness is not really an independent value. So I was taking it as um, uh, the best possible distribution of happiness throughout the, pos throughout the population, um, mm -hmm. uh, treating, treating fair as, as meaning the one that maximizes the distribution of happiness throughout the population, which is certainly not what everybody means by fair, I must admit. Um, so, uh, so now I guess you have the idea, okay, so you're prepared to do it for 7 billion. Um, are you prepared to do it for 7 million? Are you prepared to do it for 7,000? Are you prepared to do it for 7? And I suppose, um, and, you know, now I will still give the same answer, right? Um, I, I would think I ought to do it even if it's only for two. Um, but the likelihood that I will do it probably does diminish, you know, because I would think it would be so awful not to do it for seven billion, for the amount of suffering that goes on in the world, whereas if it's only two, well, their, their suffering maybe is, you know, I could enjoy my life and that wouldn't be as great as how they could enjoy it if I did this, but um, the discrepancy is no longer so great, so I wouldn't have to be as horribly selfish to decline to do it for two others as I would to decline to do it for seven billion others. All right, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, um, Professor Singer, uh, when you were mentioning the uh, paradox of hedonism, it came to my mind about uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl, who suggests that um, by searching for um, uh, consciousness or experience meaning, by, by going toward meaning that happiness could come as a side effect, but to go for happiness as a goal, it is likely that you might not reach it. So uh, how would you relate this to, uh, to this uh, premise? It's like consciousness, I yes. assume, like meaning is, and consciousness are similar in this way. Yes, I, I, th I think you're, you're, you're right. Um, I think that uh, Viktor Frankl's uh, uh, psychology um, or view of life is in accordance with the, the paradox 
of hedonism. Um, I have a, a, a book I wrote a few years ago called How Are We to Live, which discusses uh, questions about meaning and, and how they relate to personal happiness and therefore to reasons for acting ethically. Um, and I refer to, uh, to Frankel briefly in that. Um, so I, I do think that uh, very often we find uh, happiness and uh, certainly satisfaction, but also uh, somebody right at the beginning talked about inner joy, also those kinds of experiences, from doing things that we find meaningful. Um, that may be, as I say, related to the kind of beings that we are, but that is part of our nature. Like a little more depth rather than just being a superficial gratification. Yes, rather than just lying on the beach and enjoying the sun on your back. That's right, right which pulls after a while, I think. Thank you. Hello, how you doing? Good. Uh, thank you for coming here today. Um, yeah, I just want my question is, um, what if we can make the argument that certain attitudes or states of consciousness or lenses consistently create or perpetuate or expand happiness, for example, love or compassion? Um, so shouldn't our focus, if we are ultimately trying to create happiness, be on creating those things that create happiness, love and compassion? And I find it interesting that love hasn't really been mentioned much and... Uh, in terms of happiness, so what are your thoughts on that? Sure, because I haven't been trying to give an account of what things lead to happiness. I'm not doing uh, what's nowadays called positive psychology um, of trying to chart out the things that, you know, yes, you too can be happy and here are the seven steps that will lead you to a happy life. Um, I'm not saying that isn't a valuable thing to do uh, insofar as uh, the psychologists are right about the seven steps that will lead you to a happy life. I think it's good that, that people are doing that and studying that. Um, and I'm quite sure that uh, uh, love is one of those um, uh, important parts of it, finding love, finding uh, close personal relationships anyway, put it that way. Not everybody can be fortunate enough to find love, perhaps, for long periods. Um, but I do think that that's a very important part of uh, human happiness. And uh, uh, you also mentioned compassion. Compassion, I think, is somewhat more mixed because... Uh, while I think compassion does lead us to relate to others, um, it can also lead us to feel more pain um, when others are suffering. So um, uh, I think compassion is, is very important in reducing the amount of suffering in the world and therefore is a, a good in terms of maximising happiness or pleasure generally, but it's not necessarily uh, for your personal happiness in the same way as I think... Um, being able to love others and being loved by others um, is uh, very important for people's personal happiness. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor, for being here. Um, I have a question about um, the ethics of uh, assisted suicide. Like, is there an ethical framework for assisted suicide, or should we like, if it's if it's uh, consent is involved, can like like suicide shops open up all over the country if there's like, what's the ethical framework of assisted suicide? Or, right, like, okay. Well, that, yeah, certainly, I mean, that, it, that's a relevant issue in terms of uh, how to minimize suffering because uh, the suffering that people experience in the last months of their lives is uh, certainly, um, I think, something that is uh, a very negative uh, aspect, a strong disvalue. Um, but you're asking the question as if we don't have already have experience of this. Um, but, of course, we do. Um, Physician-assisted suicide or physician-assisted dying, if you prefer that term, uh, has been legalized by voter initiatives in 
Oregon and Washington, has been legalized by a court decision in Montana. And uh, along with voluntary euthanasia, that is where the doctor actually administers the lethal injection, has been legal for many years in the Netherlands uh, and more recently in Belgium and, the Lux and Luxembourg. So we know how this works. Um, basically, it works well. Um, none of these countries have wanted to rescind their legislation, and none of these, none of these uh, states in the United States, um, despite uh, um, changes of government in, uh, uh, for example, in the Netherlands and, uh, and Belgium. Uh, and um, it doesn't mean that there are suicide shops. It means that there are doctors who uh, you can consult um, and request assistance in dying. Um, and uh, in various, there's various different kinds of legislation which have uh, periods that the request um, has to lie on the table in a sense that you, you can't say, I want your assistance in dying right now for the first time. Uh, perhaps a second opinion has to be called on. Uh, but uh, generally, this seems to work well. Um, uh, there have been allegations that it's been abused in the Netherlands, but those allegations don't actually stand up when you look at the comparative figures with other countries that have not legalised uh, voluntary euthanasia. Uh, and I do think it's a very simple reform that uh, reduces unnecessary suffering and also gives people what they want. So whether you take a desire-based theory, a preference theory, or a hedonistic theory, I think both of them point towards the legalisation of uh, voluntary euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Professor Singer. I wanted to thank you for being here. And um, for much of your work, I actually went from a vegetarian to a vegan 18 years ago after reading Animal Liberation. And um, in that book, you, you made what's been called the argument from marginal cases. And I wanted to back up and look at uh, one of your answers regarding the wrongness of, for instance, killing a cow being in frustrating future preferences. Um, on that reasoning, that would be the wrongness of killing a perfectly healthy infant as well. Uh, my perspective would be that whether the infant knows it or the cow knows it or not, they are conscious, that consciousness belongs to them, and you're taking away their future stream of consciousness when you kill them. Um, but my understanding is that that isn't your view, that isn't other utilitarians' view, like Lori Gruen, uh, at least in the past she's been a utilitarian. So. Um, I, I believe you said maybe that it wasn't inherently wrong to painlessly kill a cow, or what's, what's your position there? And wouldn't that position also apply to healthy, non-self-aware human infants? Um, okay, so firstly, I didn't say anything specifically about cows today. I indicated oh. a wide range between chimpanzees and fish uh, where there might be this spectrum, and I didn't say where cows fall on it. Okay. Um, and um, I'm not sure that uh, cows do fall on the fishy side, if you like, of that divide. If, uh, and I'm not even saying, I mean, you know, when people, we talk about fish, but there's a huge range of species, of course, and I'm not even really saying that uh, there are no fish that are self-aware. I just don't know. Um, but there are lots of stories that show that cows have long memories, particularly, uh, a lot of people don't know, but in the dairy industry requires newborn calves to be taken from their mothers. Um, and uh, lots of dairy farmers will tell you, uh, if they're honest, that um, the cows miss their calves for quite a long time. Temple Grandin has a story uh, in one of her books about uh, a cow that uh, was separated from her calf at a particular place, and she used to walk past that place coming in from the pastures. Uh, this was one of the relatively better dairy farms where cows actually get to be on pasture. Um, 
and uh, she used to stop and call and bellow for the car for months after the separation. So they clearly have long memories about the past. It's not clear to me that they don't have anticipation of the future. But if we're talking about beings with no anticipation of the future, then yes, whether they're human infants or whether they're non-human animals, uh, killing of them is in, intrinsically or inherently on the same footing. There may be different other factors, extrinsic factors, such as obviously the wishes of the parents are going to be highly relevant to the case of the killing of an infant. Um, and that may or may not be relevant in the case of other animals. So uh, that's, that's the view that I've held. Um, I'm, there are certainly other people. You mentioned Laurie Gruen. There are a number of others who I've had discussions and debates with, and I'm sure I'll continue to do so. In fact, there's a conference uh, called Mining Animals in Utrecht being held in late June, and uh, uh, I'm going to be discussing that issue with some other people there. So it's still an ongoing question, but um, that is the way that I'm judging it at the moment. Thank you. Uh, let me congratulate all of the questioners. I thought they were exemplary. And also congratulate <laughs> Professor Singer. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.